0: Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala Sermon Podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. What follows is an audio recording from our Sunday morning worship gathering, and we hope that you will find it encouraging, challenging, and helpful. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org. Well, good morning, church. Kid, the, the kid nation stuff is always crazy to see what happens with the ideas I come up with and what they end up doing. I thought they were going to be like, where were we supposed to run to, but they picked somewhere to run to, but they didn't go. <laughs> so the, what we're studying this morning is in Philippians. It's actually the entire book of Philippians. We've gone through the series together of community, with the unity being what makes up community. So we'll start in chapter 1 of Philippians. As you may well know, the Boston Marathon is big. Ms. Joan, you're from New England. The Boston Marathon is a big deal. That began in 1897 and was inspired by the success of the first modern-day marathon competition that was in 1896 Olympics. So the Boston Marathon is the world's oldest annual marathon and ranks among the world's biggest well-known road racing events. It started with 18 people in 1896. Now there's on average of 30,000 registered participants each year. Get this. It is New England's largest viewed sporting event of the year with a half a million people show up just to watch it. So most of whatever gets watched in New England is the Boston Marathon. Yeah, we're running a marathon. We're doing this race together. And we're going to study this morning that, hey, it's just like the Boston Marathon. There is a lot going on. There's a lot of people running. And how do we do that together? Are we just 18 participants that happen to be meandering through the roads of Boston? Who are the observers? Who are the spectators? So as we look at community, what is community? What makes us unique as a community as opposed to the Elks? A motorcycle club? A rotary club? Our community is a unified race in advancing the good news of Jesus. That's what we are about. That is what makes up the community, that makes up what we're trying to do here, what God is doing in Ocala, what God's doing in this state, and what God's doing all over the world is basically this. It's a unified race. For what purpose? What's our goal in advancing the good news of Jesus Christ? Let's look specifically at how this goes in chapter 1. And what I'm going to do is give you highlight verses to follow with your fingers as I go through. Obviously, we will not have time to read all of the verses. So in Philippians chapter 1, it's about prayers for a unified advancement of the gospel. Paul starts out with this prayer. In Philippians 1, 3-11, Paul prayed for people. Paul prayed for those that were in Philippi. And there were prayers centered on their partnership of the good news. What is, definite, what is the gospel? Jesus came, died, buried, rose again, and died. We studied this morning Thessalonians. He's coming back. That is part of the good news that makes us give hope for right now. So Paul is praying, hey, Philippians, let's partner together in this, the good news. So not only was the partnership between Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and Jesus, but also God. Look at Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Completion. The same God in Colossians who created is the same God who's looking for completion in us. Completion. What, what is complete? We see a partnership and we see a completion. To complete means to have a full end, to be complete, a final product. Or later, Paul says, perfect. You remember in Philippians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 12, that we, he, Paul was talking about he was straining forward to the goal of being spiritually mature when he writes, not that I've already obtained this, or I am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Prayers for a shared partnership and spiritual maturity, mutually aligned in unity to run the race as everyone grows in their love, knowledge, and discernment in living life looking like Jesus. What am I saying? Paul prays. What, is he, what do our prayers look like as a community? We tend to pray about, hey, this person's sick, this person's got, you know, this is... A, something that needs addressed, and those are legitimate. We pray about those. But Paul's central focus is on the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ. How are we praying for one another in partner? So that he's not just praying, God, take care of this. How then do we partner with others to do this? So that we mature in Christ to completion, to full, to full end, to complete, to being a final product. And Philippians 1: Philippians 12 to 30, he's looking for unity for the good news. So yet Paul, he's a 10,000-mile journeyman. Paul's missionary journey, someone has figured, was around 10,000 miles. That's a lot of walking and boat traveling and stuff. Give me an internal combustion engine, and I could do 10,000. This dude's walked 10,000, traveled 10,000 miles, and guess where he's at now? He's stuck. He's stopped. He's on house arrest. Why? Because he's guilty of the central idea. He's guilty of the gospel. And get this, instead of being upset that he cannot go, he cannot write, he can't do anything, he's only able to write, and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Take away what you like to do and say, is the gospel being still advanced where you're at? Paul, the missionary journey dude, is now on house arrest. And he says, hey, this has actually turned out for the advancement of the gospel. People have come to know Jesus. High-ranking people that were guarding him have come to know Jesus. And people that saw that Paul was in prison are gaining confidence in the central goal. So ne- it's not necessarily about us and our comfort." If the main thing is, is the gospel being advanced when I go to work tomorrow and the day turns out horrible, but somebody gets to watch me go through that and gets to see how the gospel works out in my life, the good news, the relationship of Jesus Christ works out in real time, can we step back a second and say, wow, that advanced the message of Jesus, gave me an opportunity to share him, instead of coming home and saying, honey, how was your day? It was horrible. Paul can say, hey, even though I'm locked up on a house arrest, the gospel went forward. And he attributes it to the work of prayer for the Philippians and the work of the Holy Spirit, is where they found the full courage to honor Christ in either life or death. Unity in our daily lives looks like standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Sounds like a race, doesn't it? Take your spot on the race course. What's Paul looking for? What would really, really make him happy if he showed up at the Philippian church on the next Sunday to see? They're working together. They're unified. And they're striving for the advancement of the gospel. And we moved into chapter 2. Striving in unity. Paul, in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, sets the best example that's ever been set for us. Jesus. It is an incredibly thick hymn, song, lyrics that set our example for the ultimate master and who we emulate, who to, to imitate. Because look, at Jesus set aside everything about individualism. Jesus set aside his royal crown and took on the status of a slave. King of the universe to servant to everybody. He humbled himself in obedience to the Father to the point of death, even to death on the cross. And he allowed God the Father to assign him the just rewards. So with us, do we set aside our individualism for the wants of others? Can we set aside our personal status for those and choose to become a servant for somebody else, regardless of what our position is? Can we humble ourselves in obedience to what God has called us to, even to the point of death, even when it's humiliating, and allow God to determine the rewards? And get this, if you look at the end of verse 11, and every tongue confess, chapter 2, verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus did it all for what? God's glory. His obedience to the Father was for God's glory. Your salvation and what happened on the cross is a byproduct of Jesus' obedience to the Father. Essentially, the crazy thing this morning, it's not all about you. Jesus was... God's Father said, you need to go do this, and he did. He brought all the glory to the Father, and the Father gave him his rewards. So here's our best example of what it means to striving in unity when we follow what Jesus said as an example. So we've got to strive in unity. So we look at chapter 2, verse 12 through 18. We've got to be the example. Here we learned to all, allow others to watch our obedience. Look at verse 12, chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out. Is this, this is the thick burst that everybody loves to skip over because we were taught that we're saved by grace, nothing by works, right? And then Paul says, hey, you work this stuff out. Working as a gardener plants a seed with an eye to the crop. Work out your salvation. Put this into the ground. Work it, and so when you what springs up is a crop, is a fruit. Galatians, the fruit of the spirit. It's hard work. You think of it as a gardener. You're putting into the ground. You're fertilizing your relationship with Jesus Christ in the presence of other people with an eye to a future crop. Work it out. How are you working out with fear and trembling? How do as a Somebody that has decided to follow Jesus, do you fear God? I'd like to explain it this way. For those who do not know Jesus Christ, when God judges them or they get a glimpse of who he is on whatever day that is, it's, oh, boy. For those who know Jesus, it's like, whoa. I see him, and that I didn't have any idea. It's the same God from a different perspective. Those who don't know him will be in fear of, oh, my goodness. Every tongue is going to confess, whether in heaven or hell, above, below, everything. Satan himself will someday drop to his knees and confess Jesus as Lord. We know that. That fear is like, I was wrong. But as those who have chosen to follow Jesus, what this verse is saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is the God of the universe when you get into his throne room like, that's the one I'm serving. Trembling, yeah, we've got to work through this. There's a little bit of nervousness to it. There's a little bit of it's on our shoulders to get us through. But get this. God's not leaving us abandoned. Because he's asked us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we'll look at the next line. For it is God who works in you, but to will, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is extremely excited to join you in the race. He's like, hey, you're running. I want to get behind you and push you. I want to see what's going on with you. I want to be there to enable you to do this. I want to be there to fertilize that growth. I want to be there to where you evidence maturity and unity with others. And I want you to get excited about God wants to do this with you, so you do it in community in such a way that Ocala sees you. The shore sees you. Wherever you work sees you. And all of this allows us to shine as a light in a dark and chaotic world in which we live. There's a slight glimmer of hope when people get to see God working in somebody else's life and they get to observe, wow, there is something different about that person. So Jesus set an example. We've got to strive as being an example in unity, and we've got examples to follow. Because Paul immediately goes to Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy, his right-hand man, who had proven his worth to advance the common goal of the race, the finish line, the prize of advancing the good news. Epaphroditus, Paul's trusted disciple, fellow worker, comrade in arms who served the Philippians by serving Paul for the advancement of the gospel. Look. God wants to get behind you. What do you see there? What is that? I tried to find a cool picture of this. Sails. I didn't count them, but there's a whole bunch of sails. It looks like the Hemi of sailboats. How many people do you think it would take to run this thing? To work this, to put up all the sails? Three? Three? A whole bunch of gobslots. And they got to work, okay, they get to put up the sails however they want. This, I'm like, okay, so look at everything that's happening in this picture. God wants to be the wind in the sails. Hey, you get to putting them up, and I'm going to propel the ship. But you, you put, let's say that there's 50 people on this boat, this ship, and nobody knows a clue what they're doing you got to have those people that get, here's how you do it. Here, do it with, I'll tell you, do it with me, then you can do it by yourself. Isn't our Christian race like that? You may be a baby. You may have known Jesus for 20 years, but you never set a sail. You've never got into the race. You've been talking about running shoes. You've been reading about the race. And maybe you've stretched a couple times. But you never actually ran. Because I'm a Christian. i got good shoes. Jesus loves me. I don't want to get my shoes dirty in life. So I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and see people say, Hey, what are you doing? i um, just Christian. So when Jesus asks us to get in the race, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Get to work. Get into the race. And then when you get into the race, who's the one encouraging you on and enabling the race to go? Jesus. And you run all by yourself. No, you run with the community. As we move into chapter three, we got a unified group race for Jesus. Look at verse one, chapter three. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I don't know about you, but how many have ran and then were had the air to rejoice while you're running? Not I. I ride mountain bikes with two retired guys who smoke me every Tuesday night. And how do I know they smoke me? Because they argue like grumpy old men. They talk the whole time. Arguing about whatever they want to argue about. And then they're like, hey Todd, how come you're not saying anything? That's because I'm out of breath. I think they do it to humiliate me. But In the middle of the race, Paul says rejoice. Fill your lungs with air. And celebrate. We're getting ready to do the 4th of July. And that picture probably is what Deb's boys will look like in Oklahoma this weekend. They save all your rooms to do that crazy stuff. We stop on the 4th of July to celebrate our independence. What do we celebrate as what we're doing here? In your life, with whom do you celebrate it? Today is Michael and Jesse's anniversary. That's a round of applause. It's worthy of celebrating. Every marriage is a miracle. But we celebrate those kind of things. In the middle of this race, Paul says, hey, stop a moment and rejoice. Listen, I don't know how you were raised in church, but it's not a quiet race. You don't sit here all mum. There are things to rejoice about and celebrate. Jesus' followers aren't quiet. They sing, they shout, they declare, they praise, they rejoice together in what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what it looks to approach the finish line. Paul yells again, hey, watch out. So you got to rejoicing, and at the same time he's like, watch out. Watch out for the dogs. Verse 2. Look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the fish flesh. Not, are we to be, not only are we to be loud in our rejoicing, but have an eye to those who would encourage us to run a race other than for Jesus. If Jesus isn't the reason why we're running, if it's not an advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ and the making disciples, we're running the wrong race. Wouldn't it be horrible to train for a marathon, and around mile 20, somebody sends you off on a 30-mile detour? I think there'd be some really upset people. I heard of a recent mountain bike race where it was supposed to be 100 miles, and everybody's got the little computer. Everybody clicked over 100 miles, 15 miles before the end of the race. For the last 15 miles, the entire group is yelling and cursing. They thought they were doing 100. What I'm saying is watch out for those who'd say, hey, take care of this. Be happy. There's all kinds of other things that could take us off of what it means to do what we're doing here. Everything we want to do is in the purpose of making disciples. Supplementing a good thing for the greatest thing is wrong. Let me say this. We want to affect the homeless people. We want to do things for the homeless. We want to do things here to build us up together. But if we lose track of why we're doing what we're doing and it becomes all about being seen in public for the good things we do, we've missed the mark. We're on the wrong race. And as leaders, it's really, really hard when somebody comes up with a good idea and we're trying to figure out how do we keep this in line with the main idea. So rejoice, suck in some air, get together with the other runners and celebrate. Celebrate. Because there's some of us have been running a long time, there's some of us been just getting our shoes on, they've been playing around for a long time, we celebrate those, and then celebrate and get toward the end of the finish. We're going to go through all of those as a family, don't we? Spiritual birth to clear till death. And then it's a celebration. Hey, they crossed the line. And we studied that in Thessalonians this morning. It gives us hope now. So we're rejoicing, we're watching out. And move to verse 12. and We're striving and we're pressing on. Look at verse 12. We press on, we strive on, we run hard. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Another complicated verse in Philippians. Paul's saying, "Get your shoes on, get to running. Strive, press forward. We're yet," he says, "I'm not yet perfect." This is the same word that has its root in what we talked about before, and I, not full to perfect means to its full completion, all fully done, complete. Guys. This is the Apostle Paul at the end of his 10,000 missionary journey who's looking in the eyes of death and says, I'm not done yet. So if he's a race, some kind of marathon racer, he's from Kenya, and he set world records year after year on the marathon, and he says, I'm not done training. Keep training. Keep racing. Strive on. Press on, because Jesus has pressed on for us. Our eyes have to be constantly fixed on the finish line of growing in spiritual maturity. We're running the race in such a way that Ocala will know that we love growing in Jesus. And remember, Jesus has his hands to our back. You remember this from the uh, sermons before that I was riding my bike and this gentleman came up behind his wife. And she's puddling for all she was giving it. And he put his hand in the small of her back and helped her along. It was on a trail like that. It was wide. This is Jesus is like hey, keep pressing on, keep striving on, because he is that hand in the small of your back to keep on going, to keep motivated, to keep pressing on. And look at verse 17. Imitate the mature. Verse 17, chapter 3. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Imitate. How arrogant can you be to grow into a church and say, Hey, I know how to follow Jesus. Imitate me. What would you think if this is the first time you've, you walked into the building and you ran up to another lady and said, Hey, you want to follow Jesus? Imitate me. We don't like that in a church, but we don't mind it at the work. You want to do something the best that somebody can do in the workplace, and they say, hey, you want to learn how to do this? Imitate me. Follow me. I will train you to do it. Paul says this in God's Word, so it has to be true. Is Paul being arrogant? No, he's ran the race, and he knows what it's like to run it. And by the way, we are all about making disciples. As you are making disciples, you have to be willing to let somebody imitate you. Do you have the spiritual maturity to say, oh, this is scary. You can imitate me. You do it every day with your kids. I don't know if there's anybody here without kids. You don't have kids. I didn't see you. You were ducked down. Okay. So you're the only one this doesn't apply to. Your children were watching you today as I watched them watch you. You're okay with that. But walk into a church on Sunday and read this verse and say, who's worthy of being imitated this morning? We're looking for that. I am asking for it. The leadership team knows that those who watch us, we have to set that standard. And it is scary. It's part of that fear and trembling stuff again. Do I want to run up here and say, imitate Todd Monday through Saturday? Robbie lived with me. Jesse and Michael lived with me for like 90 days. Sarah's known me long enough to know that's kind of goofy. The guy's a little... But that's discipleship. Living with somebody in such a way that they spend time with you and say, wow, I watched them walk through that, and that's worthy of following. And as a teacher, how much more do you have to know than a student? Like a half-stuff. So if you want to disciple somebody, take that courage, be worthy of being imitated, and maybe it's a time to say, whoa, i got to step my game up. Who am I going to imitate? Because as we chase after Jesus in this race, we're doing it together in such a way that we're going to have those that are going to disciple us, and we turn around and disciple them. So Paul says this crazy verse right here. That if you made it your church verse, there would, people would walk straight out the door. Who's worthy of being imitated this morning? I'm asking you. Because you've got kids walking in their dad's boots every day of the week. Spiritually, we've got people coming that want to grow in Jesus, that want somebody that they can imitate. And ladies, this is incredibly vital for what we're looking for in Ocala. Women discipling women. Titus 2 kind of thing. Imitate the mature. Resist the temptation that your race is either passive or complacent altogether, that this really isn't a race, but it's a time to rest on Sunday from 9 to noon. You're not running the race right now. You're learning. We give moments in Sunday for you to be able to run with people, to cheer them on. But this is not the race time. This is halftime encouragement to go, tomorrow morning is the race. Today, right after the service is over and you're dealing with kids on the way to wherever you're going to have lunch is the race. Do you understand what I mean? Put your shoes on. Stand firm. I love how Paul mixes his metaphors and we have to preach through this, but he does. Because in verse what, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, stand firm. <laughs> but he's already done this before. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says, hey, I really, really want to see you guys. And when I do, want—it's really going to excite me is to see you guys standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together. So taking your place on the race track, taking your place, standing firm in what you've known and grown Be worthy of being imitated. Find those that you could imitate and be willing to allow those to imitate you. All the while, Jesus is behind you saying, I am so excited to see you run. And finally, chapter 4, Paul closes. There's unity in action. All of this sounded really good. All this sounded good in theory. But... There is unity and reconciliation. <coughs> Check this out. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, you got a lady's arguing. I love how the Bible is so real. I urge, I entreat Eutica and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. When you love to be those two ladies where God's word records for all time that you two girls couldn't get along? The Bible is so honest. If we're going to do this imitating business and we're going to do this discipleship business, it takes time together. And the more you get to know each other, the more it aggravates the living stuff out of you. That's why marriages are miracles. Because you really do get to know each other. But God's word says, hey, you two, get along. Now look. Verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. And how does he describe these women? These two women that can't get along right now? Look, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. These ladies had worked side by side with Paul, and he hears about them arguing back over here, and he's like, you two reconcile. So why? So you like each other? So the storm clouds go down. So there's not so much stress at the family dinner table. No, for the advancement of the gospel. They strove. They were there. These were good ladies who had labored side by side with Paul. They were running the race with Paul. They had worked together hard for the common goal, but get this. They had, there was required of them the additional effort of walking through the process of forgiveness, reconciliation, and getting back on the job, getting back in the race. That's why it's kind of a challenge when you get to know each other is, hey, I'm going to have to actually forgive them. That's the easy part, even though it's really pretty tough. What's the hardest part after forgiving somebody? Reconciling. What does that then mean now? How do I go through that? And now you've got these two worlds colliding on how fast you can reconcile. And then it could take, for me, it takes like 15 minutes. I love just being able to argue with Pastor Michael because I get my stuff done in like 15 minutes, but then he's a three-day processor, dude. So it's been really fun as we get to be friends because he's, I'm like, oh, cool, we're argued, we're done, we're moving on. And he's like, three days later, okay, I made it, I'm reconciled. I'm like, where are you playing? Like so when you have these relationships, you know you need to do it. You've got to know each other well enough, you've got to forgive. Especially if you're married. Especially if you're going to be imitated. Because you're going to let somebody down, you're going to hurt their feelings. Because Jesus forgave us, and it gives us an example to forgive one another, and it's kind of what we're emulating. And then you're working toward reconciliation, not just to get the storm clouds away, but to get back in the race. So, you have this unity in action that's called reconciliation. That's God doing some powerful work. Unity through the anxiety. Unity in action looks like peace when there's anxiety. I like anxiety by illustrating peace. What in the world? Look at chapter 4. Verse 6 and 7, this off-quoted verse. Do not, by the way, underline do not, highlight that, Paul's yelling. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And verse 7, what's the result of that? Peace. Peace. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace in the midst of anxiety. How does those two things go together? How does God work that out? You guys have been incredibly anxious over some big-time stuff with this whole relocation business. The cool thing is there's some other families that's doing that, and you guys are getting ready to do it again, which we're not voting for. But anyhow, um, how do you have peace during all that craziness? Oh, moving man stuff! You got all this. You got marriage coming on. How does you? How do you exemplify peace in all this? Have you guys any seen this picture before? I love this picture. Lighthouse, you know, with a great big wave crashing down around it. Check this out. There's a dude standing there in that door. That's peace. It's not the lack of waves around the lighthouse. That's us standing there in the midst of the storm with God saying, I got you. I haven't lost sight of you, and I've got this under control. It might cost, it might hurt, you might be in prison, you might be castigated at work, but I got you. That's peace. When you Google peace, and you see these pictures, it's all these calm waters and stuff, and I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I want at all. That's peace. Because is our life peaceful? Without Jesus. You can try to throw some band-aids on it and try to mitigate the roughness. Try to keep all the shenanigans down to a minimum. Then we can have peace. No, no, no. God teaches a peace is in the midst of the crazy storm when He's taken it to Him because He's the only one that can fix it. Don't go to a dentist to fix your Hemi. You got problems in life and you're anxious about what's coming on, take it to God. He isn't scared. Moses did it quite a bit and actually got to be a pretty cool yelling match between the two of them. God's not scared of those questions. But God says, hey, don't be anxious about anything. Why would he say, doggone it, Jesse, don't you be anxious? Why would he command it? Okay, you got little kids, you got a few. You got meal ready. It's all ready to go, but you got Grant doing the blah blah. You got little Clyde doing the blah blah. You're like, it's all, it's here on the kitchen. Three seconds. Life will be better. Or no, you can have the blue cup. I don't know what I'm just learning this stuff. Why does a child calm down over the color of a cup? I don't know. The blue cup is coming. Because you're like, I got this. You're stressing out over nonsense. God's the same way with us. Whatever's ahead of you, Joan, I got this. It's 30 seconds. I'm bringing the blue cop. You guys relocated clear across the country. Don't know where you're going to work. Who are your friends going to be? I got this. Here's your blue cop. In the midst of the storm. And who watches during the storm? Everybody watches. Your Facebook is probably blown up because you guys are moving. And you got like ten million people coming to a wedding, and watching the bride—you know—all that stuff go on. That's a lot. Unity in action looks like what you think about. Your thought and practice. Whatever we choose to dwell on, whatever we emphasize, is that's what we celebrate. Because verses 8 through 9 is the whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever, 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 think on this. Why? Why does he say that? Because that what you dwell on comes up. You get a tingling on Monday that your co-worker is aggravating you, and you fester on that, and you blow that up, or somebody's aggravated you a little bit sideways... By Thursday, how big is that problem? Okay, the other side of that is think on what God has asked you to think on. Because when you're thinking on, hey, what, am I, what is stuck in there that I've been going over? Instead of being anxious, I'm thinking about whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. Think on it. That which comes from the heart works its way out in the hands and feet. It's a crazy thing when you talk to guys and they're showing stuff that shouldn't be shown in public, and you say, Hey, at least I'm not touching. Jesus said, Well, you do it, you think it, you look at it, it's already done. That's a crazy standard. And guys don't like that, that don't know Jesus, don't know the Bible. And when you cross that threshold, you've crossed into a crazy standard of just absurdity to them. You tell me I am guilty of adultery because of that? Jesus taught that. You're going to have to build some relational equity to get there, gentlemen. Don't come out of the box first with that one. But that's what Jesus taught. And ladies, I'm not exactly sure whether it's an all-expenses-paid trip to Walmart or the Bahamas, or whatever it is that you dwell on. Or the lack of drama? If it would just stop drumming, I would be happy. Whatever you're thinking about, it comes out through the hands and the feet. So those are thoughts in action. And by the way, we do this together. Whatever we choose as a body to dwell on, to think on, to press forward on is what we will do. being content in all situations. Look at verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 12. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to, be, uh, how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, obedience and need. I can do th- all things through him who strengthens me. Friends, this has nothing to do with a foul line at a Christian school or in a gymnasium so you can work out. Let me get this straight. The context of this verse is Paul like, I know what it's like to have nothing, nothing, nothing. To be flat broke, stranded on an island, and after being beaten. And I know how to be content with that. I know what it's like to have a lot and be content with that. Guys and ladies, this is really, really hard because our marketing gurus in the United States are professionals that tell us we're not content. Are you content with where you are and what Jesus is doing with you? Or would it be better if such and such changed? The storms around you are too rough and I'm not content. Whether it's what your paycheck doesn't buy or whether the security of wherever you are in your relationships, where is your contentment in? Paul says, I know how to find that. How? Because of all of the work of Jesus who strengthens you. It's the idea coming back again that Jesus' is hands in the small of our back. He hasn't lost you nor forsaken you. Remember, it's God who's excited to work with us. Because God is excited to work with Grace Church of Ocala as we run our unified race for the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ. God's doing the hard work in the hearts and minds of people. His will of us is to strive in unity, content on what he is doing in the current situation. He's promised to see the hard work done until it's complete, full, with an eye on the crop. And finally, this is the hard one for me this morning. I don't like preaching about money, but Paul talks about it in 4, 14 through 23. It's all about meeting needs as needs are met. You, the, the Philippians gave when he was in Thessalonica. And he remembers that. Remember, we studied Thessalonica in the mornings. It was there for a little bit, and Paul got in a really rough way. Then he got run out of town. Who was it that financially supported him? It was them. Friends, let me break it down to you this way. We meet here this morning because there's another body in Sebring who literally gave money to keep these lights on. We do not give enough money for everything to happen here. Right At this point, our tithing isn't enough to keep everything going. So, our goal is to advance the gospel, to make disciples who make disciples who come in and see a need, meet a need, and give. It's part of the worship service that we do. Yeah, it's a long range goal. But there are people in Sebring this morning who see the need of Ocala, see the need of what's going on in Lakeland, and are giving for it. And how many of them you seen face to face? Not a lot. Now, Miss Sarah lived down here for a while. She knows some faces. When I say that, you've traveled a few times. But there's a body this morning who knows a need, who is giving for that need, to see a need and meet it. What does that sound like? Love. So as you give it is toward the needs that are here so then we hopefully someday can send out from here meet, see a need and meet that need what is community getting together oh it's just running the unified race and advancing the good news of Jesus Christ that is our goal that is what we're doing and how do we know we're doing it how is the good news of Jesus Christ landed in a person they're spiritually reborn they're spiritual infants. They're growing into adolescents. Become adults, and then what do adults do? They make babies. We need some babies. Spiritual babies. Go make them. Spiritually speaking, yeah. So what are we going to do for each other? What race are you running this morning? Is it for the advancement of the gospel, or are you just running like crazy every which way? Are you running the Boston Marathon, but you went to Utah? With whom are you running? Are you doing this all alone? Are you even running at all? Or you thought you could put on your Christian shoes and say, is this prayer about Jesus, and you just put the shoes on, you've been sitting on the sidelines, you even read some books. And you read the Bible a couple times, and you know what a running race looks like. So what race are you running this morning? Is it for the advancement of the gospel and to make disciples who then make disciples? And with whom are you running? We want to run this together. Imitate it. Be worthy of being imitated. And finally, our community. What are we advancing? When somebody says, Grace Church of Ocala, what are you advancing? Jones, somebody meets you this week wherever you're at, and you're like, hey, you go to that little church down there off 7th Street. What are they all about? What's your answer? Robbie, you guys have visited down there, you know, they're at work, and you're like, where are you hanging out? What are they doing all, what are they about? What's your answer? I'm asking you the hard stuff because I'm not going to answer this question for you because I think I know the answer, but it's up to you to know it. I preached about it. And if we're anything other than what I preached about, then we need to get back online. But then be able to have that 30-second clip at work, and they say, what are you all about? What goes on down there? I would like to see us advance the gospel in our community through the, what we've been doing with the homeless. And we learned a lot when we went and handed out the blessing bags. Thank you all very much for giving those. They went in literally like three minutes. Gone. Was it, was it shorter than three minutes? 30 seconds. 30 seconds. All the bags were... Poof. Okay, so we're all about figuring out how to do things and then change, because that's what you got to do. And so they, somebody came up to us, and we met some other people, and they got some wise input. And here's what we're going to do. Instead of us, a little group, trying to meet all the needs at one time, and it's all poof, gone, just baby wipes. These are like... The oh wow the need for just these are insane. They have so every family start bringing these. Just these. We will assemble these, huh? Because uh, they use these for a lot of stuff: uh, washing, bathing, cleaning. When you don't have access to washing, bathing, cleaning. Because the cool part of handing this stuff out with the homeless, you get close to the homeless, the homeless smell like homeless. It will teach you that this is a need. So the leadership team said, hey, how do we do this? How do we be effective? How do we be effective in reaching our community? And how do we be effective in equipping you to do the work of ministry? To you to make a decision. What does it mean to come here to think outside of here? And so this is, a, this is one of the, the illustration the application for this month. Because within, in July, we're going to go hand these out on July 14th at 7. It's a Thursday. So from now to then, bring in baby wipes. What are we about? What has Philippians taught you about running a race in community? How are you unified with others to do that? What race are you in? And who are you running with? Thanks again for listening. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala or the sermon you just heard, please visit our home on the web, Ocalagrace.org.